to those with attentive ears, I think you might see that our message is already been preached in the combination of Psalms, Gospel, and uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament reading. So I'm done. <laughs> I'm Jacob Rodriguez, one of the pastors here at Res, and we're going through Abraham's journey. In Genesis chapter 12 and 22, we're nearly done. We've experienced the goodness, the mercy, the promises of God. And we're going to discover another aspect of God's character, as he calls the wandering nomads, Abram, from Ur of the Chaldees, to be the father of a great nation, through whom God would accomplish his rescue plan for the whole world. A world that was held in captivity under sin. Now, today our passage is heavy. The latter half of Genesis 18 and the first half of Genesis 19. And today we will encounter God as the righteous judge of all the earth, but also as the merciful God who is pleased to save sinners. Before we dive in with such a heavy topic, let's ask our God to help us. Heavenly Father, make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. For the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me tell you about a man named Bass Reeves. If you haven't heard about him, you should hear about him. Uh, find a book in the library. Uh, you might not find too many books about him, but I think his story needs to be told, and his proper biography needs to be written. He is one of the great African-American heroes of the 19th century. He was born as an enslaved person in Arkansas in 1838. And during the Civil War, in his mid-20s, he escaped from enslavement. And he lived as a fugitive among the Native American peoples of the Cherokee, the Creek, and the Seminole. He came to love his indigenous people's cultures and histories. He became fluent in their language, in, in their languages, plural. After slavery was abolished in 1865, Bass Reeves was recruited by a federal judge in Arkansas to be a deputy marshal with a jurisdiction of over 74,000 square miles, which is most of Oklahoma and Kansas. And Reeves was well suited for this job. He was fluent in several Native American languages, as we just said, and uh, most importantly, however, he had a desire for justice, and that desire for justice ran deep in his bones. Having grown up in enslavement and having witnessed the perpetration of serious crimes that went unpunished, he had an unflinching resolve to bring outlaws to court, to face a fair trial, and to receive the just punishment for their wrongdoings. He successfully arrested over 3,000 uh, fugitives in his 32-year career of being a U.S. Uh, deputy marshal, and most of these outlaws were armed and dangerous. My wife and I traveled once from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, all the way to Amarillo, Texas, and we took for granted the fact that we could make that trip without being hijacked by uh, wandering or uh, marauding thieves and bandits. But back then, innocent travelers had to rely on the justice-keeping work of men like Bass Reeves, uh, the 2016 uh, remake of the film uh, Magnificent Seven. Uh, Denzel Washington plays the character modeled after Bass Reeves, did a brilliant job. Anyway, I love my script. 
So, but here's the thing. That passion for justice that moved uh, Bass Reeves to that uh, dangerous career but faithful career of upholding justice, it beats in the heart of us human beings. We see the same thirst for justice in the 1946 Nuremberg trials in which the architects of the Holocaust were condemned and their deeds were made known for the world to see so that justice could be served. And it was a kind of collective catharsis, at least the beginnings of a collective catharsis, for the Jewish people to know that the evil doing against their people had been <coughs> recognized and punished. And to this day, the Armenian people still long for the redress for their genocide that they suffered at the hands of the Ottoman perpetrators a century ago. You see, as the great Frederick, Frederick Douglass once said, there is no peace without justice. Justice is good. Justice, rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. This might sound old-fashioned, but it gets to the heart of who our God is. Psalm 146, verses 8 through 9 says that the Lord loves the righteous. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Our God is the God of justice. He is the judge of all the earth. And he will do right. It is this God who called Abraham and promised to bless him and his descendants. And through his descendants to bless all the nations of the earth. In our passage today, Genesis 18 through 19, we see a key facet in God's plan to bless the nations through Abraham, and it's as follows. God judges wickedness, but shows mercy to sinners on account of his promise to righteous Abraham. God judges wickedness, but he shows mercy to sinners on account of his promise to righteous Abraham. Abraham. This is going to be one of the key ways that he will bring his full blessing to all nations. So let's look into our story now. God has just visited Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of uh, chapter 18. He's visited them through the mysterious three messengers sent to their tent. They've enjoyed the generous hospitality of Abraham and Sarah, and they have confirmed the promise that it would be Sarah herself who would bear the child of promise. After they finished their meal, Abraham, like a good Middle Eastern host, he walks them all the way to the edge of his property. We used to do this in Ethiopia all the time. He walks them, but not just to your front door, but to the very edge of your property, and you see them on their way and bless them. This is what Abraham is about to do to his visitors. And when he gets to that edge, we get a glimpse of the Lord's own thoughts as the Lord holds counsel with himself. In verses 17 through 19, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. See those words coming up again. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Okay, so God has chosen Abraham, and he's called this Abraham to be the one to perpetuate that covenant, to keep it going by having children. 
And as we see in coming a circumcision a couple weeks ago, sexual holiness being set apart for God for this purpose, it was integral to the covenant. You see, God sanctified, he set apart the sexual union of man and woman, and upon that he plans to build his kingdom in the Old Testament. And through this vehicle, he brings blessing to all the nations. We see it with the promise given to Eve that a seed of her would crush the serpent's head. We see it when Adam and Eve have, have Cain, and then when they have Seth, and this hope that maybe that seed, maybe that man would be the one that God has promised. We see it with the child of promise with the birth of Isaac. And we see Abraham call to sanctify his sexuality. To be the vehicle through which that blessing in the Old Testament story is going to come to pass. God called Abraham and his descendants to keep the way of the Lord also by doing righteousness and justice. Not only would they be a people that would be fruitful and multiply, but God intended them to be a people that would keep righteousness and justice. You see, righteousness is God's standard of what it means to live in right relationship between God and one with another. And justice is the working out of that righteousness in particular cases. And when we see these two words, righteousness and justice together, it basically means the ordering of society according to God's standards. And when this is applied in the ancient context, and we'll find in our context today, it means caring for the needs of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the oppressed. And it means punishing the wicked while rewarding the righteous. This is based on God's own character, that first of all, God does not declare the guilty innocent. Secondly, God does not condemn the righteous. And finally, third, God shows special care for the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. We see these three aspects of God's character, his commitment to righteousness and justice throughout the Old Testament, the law given through Moses, through the testimony of the prophets. And we see Israel, as God's nation, again and again, failing these standards. And the standards go back to God's own character as the righteous judge of all the earth. Now God, again, has chosen Abraham's family to be that vehicle through which this righteousness and justice would spread to the whole world. But only through Abraham's family keeping that righteousness and justice would the promise of blessing go to the nations. And so the Lord, understanding that that is what he's called Abraham and his family to, has this kind of internal dialogue saying, I know that the cry uh, has come out from so uh, against Sodom and Gomorrah, and I know that, that righteousness and justice is what I've called Abraham to. Shall I let Abraham into what my plan is going to be to execute justice against the cities of the valley, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? He decides to reveal this to Abraham in verses 20 and 21. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
He lets Abraham into that. And we get a little bit of a clue of why the Lord is letting Abraham into the, the plan of what he is about to do. I think he's inviting Abraham to respond in exactly the way that Abraham responds. Verses 22 to 25, Abraham still stood before the Lord and drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is effectively haggling with God, or so it seems. He, he, he starts with 50 and makes his way down. He makes his way down to just 10, saying, If there's just 10 righteous people, will you spare the whole city? Shall the judge of all the world not do what is just? Now, Taking a few steps back, taking a deep breath. This is a lot of this is a way in that. Let me share more of a mundane example of how each of us has this instinct for wanting the one who's in charge, who has the levers of power and justice, to do what is right. I'll never forget June 2nd, 2010. What happened on that day? The Detroit Tigers played the Cleveland Indians, and Armando Galarraga, the Detroit Tigers pitcher, had retired the first 26 batters, and he made it all the way to the ninth inning. He was about to pitch the perfect game. Oh, it was painful to say. <laughs> Top of the ninth, all right? Just two outs to go, Jason Donald of Cleveland hits a soft ground, ground ball that Miguel Cabrera could easily catch up. He picks it up, throws it to, Ar to Armando, who had made it all the way to first base. He catches it, and the guy is out. But what does the umpire do? <laughs> Save! Oh, the collective heart of Detroit that day just sunk. The umpire robbed Alavaga of the perfect game he deserved. All of you up the party, all of Detroit let out a cry that went up to the heavens. <laughs> Shall not the judge of all baseball do what is right? You see, there is a sense of here's what is right. Here are the all here's the whole state eye of the camera that sees what actually happened. And to this day, it's called the near-perfect game. You can Google it and find out. Now, amplify that by a million. And you'll see Abraham's intercession for his nephew Lot. He sees something that looks like it's about to happen that would be complete injustice if Lot, who actually loved, who we'll see in the greater context, does not deserve to perish with Sodom and Gomorrah, if he would be swept away in the destruction that would come against Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham actually takes it a step further. This is where we see the mercy of God. He doesn't just say, spare Lot's life, because he doesn't deserve that judgment. He says, spare the whole city. He prays that God would spare the entire city of Sodom for the sake of those righteous few whether they are 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, or only 10. It would be unrighteous for God to judge the righteous along with the wicked, but it is outrageously merciful for God to save the wicked on account of the righteous. 
Know well as well here that God invited Abraham to join him in this divine council. And God is not reluctant to slow mer- to show mercy as if he's like, oh, okay, fine, 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 I'll have mercy. No, he invites Abraham into this conversation. And through the, the prayer and the intercession of Abraham, he is moved to show mercy as there are only ten righteous persons. Look, 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 look again at how Abraham goes back and forth. You know how many times he goes back and forth with God? Six times. Moving from 50 righteous people all the way down to just 10. Where's the seventh appeal? And why does he stop at just 10 righteous? This is like ending the national anthem with, or the land of the free and the home of the... Okay, song's over. Like, oh, there's one more word to say. Would God spare the wicked for the sake of just one righteous man? This question is just begging to be asked at the end of Abraham's intercession, and we see later on in the big story of Scripture that indeed, yes, it is true. God would spare the wicked on behalf of just one righteous man. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're still in Genesis chapter 18. And we see in Abraham's discussion with the Lord, and the Lord's display of his own commitment to justice, that he will judge the wicked. But he's making a movement towards mercy, to show mercy to sinners on account of his promise to righteous Abraham. So the Lord sends to Abraham and demonstrates his justice by sending the two messengers down to Sodom. In response to Abraham's intercession, these messengers go to the city to seek out and find if there are ten righteous people. And these two angels, when they go to Lot's house, find out that there are not even ten righteous persons. And so their response is to take the few who can still be counted as those who do not yet deserve this judgment to call them out and bring them to safety before destruction comes. Now, as I preach this sermon in Western in Western country here in the capital United States, um, uh, I've come back into the cultural waters of North America. And it is against sort of the instincts that I kind of started to inhabit now by being a Westerner again, to preach on the justice and the judgment of God. And I was serving the Horn of Africa and uh, uh, speaking about Jesus to my Muslim neighbors. It was within their cultural framework. Of course, there's going to be a final judgment. Of course, the creator of heaven and earth is going to judge wickedness. That would be our common ground. And based on that common ground, I would then uh, go to another common ground that we, we know that Esau Masih, Jesus the Messiah, is going to come on the final day. And he will be the one who will preside over this final judgment. But when we speak about this final judgment, as it's displayed against Sodom and Gomorrah here in the West, it's very countercultural. And we, 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 we approach a chapter like Genesis chapter 19, and one of the questions that we might ask is, is this even worthy of being in the scriptures? Is this the word of God? 
but as God's people who have received the Old and New Testaments as the testimony about Christ and of the, 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 the special revelation of who our God is, we need to approach it with a humility and say, God is speaking in this. This is His Word. If it's difficult to understand, it's not that the text has to change, it's that our hearts have to change to see who God is in His justice. And against the backdrop of that justice to see his overwhelming mercy. So, what does God judge in Sodom? He says in chapter 18, verse 20, that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very great. And in chapter 19, verse 14, he says, the outcry against his people has become great, before the Lord. Now that key word, outcry, needs a home in That is a single word that we hear across the Old Testament when there is a people who are oppressed. They're seeing the, the rich and the powerful and those who have the levers of the political system acting unjustly against those who are most vulnerable. And in fact, later on, the prophet Ezekiel tells us exactly what it was that caused that outcry to come up from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and following, it was pride, excess of food, injustice toward the poor and the needy, and the practices of abominations and shameless sin. It was almost a kind of, here's what we have, and God as worse of an insult as you can say, say think that's not going to be on the pulpit. Saying it to God, saying, look, we're going to do it, and you can't do a thing about it. And we look at our passage today in its detail, we see that the inhospitality of the people expressed through the exploitative practices of this gang rape show the utter depravity of this city that has forsaken God's ways turned in on itself and is awaiting the justice and judgment of God. Now also as we see this passage and we read it in the context of what God has called Abraham to do, we can see that it brings up the, 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 the reality that sexual practices that oppose God's design for covenant life are also a sign of a people that has forsaken what God intended them to be in stark contrast with Abraham. Remember that in Genesis 17, in the covenant of circumcision, God set apart Abraham and Sarah's sexuality to be the vehicle through which he would bless the world. Abraham and Sarah. And then before them, Noah and his wife. They were a kind of new Adam and Eve, whose relationship as man and woman would continue the hope that one day a seed would spring up and rule the nations with justice and righteousness and crush the head of the serpent. Now the homosexual practices of those in Sodom in this passage is not the main concern of our passage. I don't want to fixate on it for too much because we want to appreciate what the passage is highlighting. But nor is it the case that our passage has nothing to say about sexual practices outside of God's standard of one man and one woman. Before Christ, this design was set by God for Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah that would bring salvation to the nations through the people of Israel. 
And after Christ, this pattern continues, but with an expiry date, the coming of Christ again. And even in this period as we wait for Christ's second coming, celibacy and childlessness are introduced into the people of God as powerful ways of demonstrating that God's blessing comes to the world, not through procreation, but through the rebirth of the Spirit. But the final picture of intimate union between God and his people is patterned after no other union than the one man, one man, sorry, one man, one woman plan of God that we see in Genesis 2. So the sin of Sodom was not only its injustice against the poor and needy, it was also its lack of hospitality, its, its brutal exploitation of visitors, and it was manifested in the way that they opposed God's vision of sanctified sexuality. We see this through the description in chapter 19 in a harrowing picture. And yet, and yet, we see glimmers of amazing hope and the God of heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead, offering one final opportunity for those inside to turn and be saved. The angels visit Son, and their, their visit to the city, it foreshadows the two spies that are going to visit Jericho before it's destroyed in Joshua 2. And it shows how God will send an invitation towards mercy before he executes judgment. Look at how Lot's escape from Sodom it foreshadows the Exodus. Look at what Lot offers to the angelic visitors in verse 3 of chapter 19. He pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. You see, the angels visiting Lot are about to bring him out in deliverance in a way that would foreshadow the great salvation that God would accomplish for his people Israel when they cried out for justice under the brutal oppression of the Egyptian regime. God shows patience and kindness to Sodom before he finally destroys Sodom. And more as well, the mercy is not only to Lot, it's also offered to Sodom. Think about what Abraham did, if you can recall, a few weeks ago in Genesis 14. God actually had already sent Abraham to save the king of Sodom from the foreign invaders. The king of Sodom doesn't respond in the same way that the king of Salem, Melchizedek, did. But it shows that God had planned through Abraham to bring blessing even to Canaanite peoples. And look at who the angels invite to join Lot in his escape towards salvation. Their sons-in-laws or anyone else you may have in this city tell them to escape with you. Just by virtue of the fact of being united to the family of Lot, anyone in Sodom would have the opportunity to escape that destruction. But in verses 12 through 14, even Lot's own son-in-laws think that he is just joking. God's blessing to Abraham, and Abraham's practice of that blessing by interceding not only for the righteous in Sodom, but for the whole city that they might be saved. It shows us that God, that God of justice, 
who will judge wickedness, is moving towards and, and is in his nature, as we pray, always to show mercy to sinners on account of his righteous one, in this case, Abraham. We know the end of the story, though, very sadly, in verse 29. He did not repent, and so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot in the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which the Lord had lived. Fire and burning sulfur rained down, and the whole surrounding area saw the judgment of God. We'll look back in verse 29 there, chapter 19. We see God's mercy. And why did he have mercy on Lot? Did God remember Lot? God remembered Abraham. He showed mercy to Lot because he remembered Abraham. Just as he had remembered Noah in the flood. Just as he would later remember Rachel in her barrenness. Just as his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be remembered by his greatness. When the people of Israel were languishing in slavery in Egypt, and the Lord would remember his covenant. Just as the Lord would remember his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Israel had gone astray with the golden calf on Mount Sinai. And just as the Lord would remember his people when they were in exile, so now the Lord remembers Abraham. And on account of Abraham's righteousness, he saves Lot from destruction. God listens to the prayer, the intercession of his righteous servant, Abraham. So much more. God is now pleased to listen to the intercession of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. God was willing to spare Sodom, a Canaanite city, for the sake of just ten righteous people. Even more, God is willing to save the whole world on account of the only truly righteous one, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is patient, as our passage from 2 Peter showed, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And God sent his two messengers for that one last offer of mercy to any who had joined themselves to Lot's family. Jesus sent 70 disciples two by two into the land of Israel to preach repentance and offer God's invitation of mercy. And now, brothers and sisters, Christ commissions us, his church, to go into all the cities of the world, however corrupt they may be, however much injustice they enact against the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. He commissions us to go to these cities and offer that same mercy that he has offered us. God is patient, not wanting any to perish. So how do we apply this, living in our current context? We should be overwhelmed, first of all, by the undeserved mercy of God that he has shown us through the righteous intercession of his perfect son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray towards that mercy and celebrate that mercy every single liturgy we have here on Sunday morning. Redeemed by our merciful Savior, we should now conduct our lives with righteousness and justice, 
caring for the poor, upholding the cause of the oppressed, welcoming the sojourner. And I've been deeply encouraged about how so many in our church community, this is a part of our lifestyle, of our heartbeat. May God speed our work in this. And brothers and sisters, looking forward to the day of judgment, the final writing that we all confess in the Nicene Creed, he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We should pray for God's mercy over the cities in which we live, where injustice rules and where God's laws are broken and spurned. We should not do so like Jonah, who wished that he would die because he was so upset that God actually showed mercy. Rather, we should be like Abraham, who prayed for the deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah, and on behalf of the finished work of Christ, and hearing the prayers of his people, may the Lord be pleased to show mercy on our city, on our country, on our world, and bring many into his kingdom before the great and dreadful day of Christ's second coming. The judge of all the earth is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But when he comes, will he find righteousness on the earth? Brothers and sisters, are you ready? May the Lord help us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.